Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Authority of the King, with a message entitled Miracles and Their Consequences. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've been studying the miracles of Jesus. Indeed, it's impossible to study the person of Jesus without studying the work of miracles. And by studying the miracles, I don't just mean that that Jesus did miracles and that he can do miracles for us. I mean that it's important to understand both what the miracles signify and why he did them. I've already pointed out in this study that every time Jesus healed someone of a physical malady, they would one day become sick again. They, They would eventually die. And when they did, Jesus didn't simply step in again and heal them all over again. No, no. Whatever was intended by the miracles, the result of them was simply a temporary relief from a world that's fallen and a world in which we will all eventually get sick or get old, but death, if it is staved off, will only be held at bay temporarily. Jesus didn't end the old order of sickness and death. Rather, what he did was heal certain individuals, and as he did, he was making a point. He he was trying to communicate something. And so simply noting that Jesus did miracles and and that he healed people in astonishing ways, well, that gets us no further than the crowd that was amazed by what he did. They simply didn't understand, and we won't either, if we only notice the miracles and not the things to which they were pointing. Now, we've noticed at least four things about miracles. First, they were signs of Jesus' compassion for those who were suffering. Second, They were signs that the kingdom of God had arrived in some form before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Third, they were signs of self-authentication. In other words, they gave convincing evidence that he really was the Son of God. And then finally, they were a test of human faith. Now, here we note that they showcase the state of the human heart, whether or not people are willing to put their trust in Jesus. So I'm reading today's text, and it's Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 34, a text that rounds out our nine accounts of miracles and healing. This is the last two accounts. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, these last two miracles probably happened on the same day as the raising of the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead and the healing of the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. This day surely was a very busy, and I'm sure it was an exhausting day for Jesus. And so from the way Matthew words it, as Jesus passed on from there, that is, this event happened right after raising the girl from the dead. And I say assume that because this account is found only in the book of Matthew. None of the other gospel writers mentions this one. 
Matthew does because he's carrying on his theme of desperate individuals who are looking for Jesus to do what no one else can. Now, I noticed the request of these two men. These blind men want mercy, but, but they state it in a most amazing way. I assume they're, they're shouting as loud as they can because they don't know exactly where Jesus is and, and they're desperate to be heard. But it's what they say that catches my attention. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, the phrase son of David has up till now never been used in relation to Jesus, that is, in the book of Matthew, and and I assume no one up to this point has ever called him that. We know that in Matthew 12, 23, the title is used as a question. Can this be the son of David? You know, Matthew 15, verse 22, a Canaanite woman from the regions of Tyre and Sidon calls him the son of David, and that's remarkable, a non-Jew attributing that title to him. I mean, perhaps she's aware of his royal lineage, or, or perhaps she believes that he's Israel's rightful king. See, we're not sure, but it's surely surprising. And then in Matthew 20, while he's on his way to Jerusalem, during what would become known as Passion Week, two blind men call him that, and then as he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, suddenly you have an eruption. The crowds are lining the way, they're waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And so it would seem that not until Jesus enters into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover that would end with his crucifixion, Not until the crowds believe that he's truly the Messiah do we ever hear this loud cry of, Son of David. And so it strikes us as odd, even remarkable, to read this title being used in Matthew 9, 27, Have mercy on us, Son of David. See, these two blind men are the first men to say that which must have been on everybody's mind. After all the miracles, is this the Messiah? You want to be careful about throwing that kind of a title around. I mean, for one... The religious establishment doesn't agree and would react rather strongly. And furthermore, the Romans viewed this with alarm. It meant war. After all, the Jewish hope for a Messiah was directly tied to their liberation from Roman oppression. Rome treated that as a legitimate threat. But these two blind men, they don't care. I mean, why should they? They're blind. They're desperate. They have nothing to lose. They've already lost everything. And because they're Jews, they would have known about Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which speaks of the coming of the Messiah. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You know, people might have have told them to curb their enthusiasm, but, but why? They're desperate. And so they shout what is politically incorrect. No, no, it's politically volatile. But this promise that he might be the son of David, the long-awaited Jewish king. This is their only hope. What follows next is an unexpected twist. Jesus knows how explosive the term son of David is, and he's most concerned that the title, even though it's his correct title, it will still lead his followers in the wrong direction. See, they'll want to make him king by force. They'll want to arrange guerrilla warfare against the Roman forces, and Jesus is going to have none of that. So he takes the two blind men indoors away from the crowd and he simplifies the issue. Do you believe I have power to heal you? And they say, yes. And he heals them on the spot and the two blind men can see. But with that comes his command. Be thankful and tell no one. In fact, the text says he sternly warned them. That means he was completely firm on the matter. There must be no telling of this event. 
And that, by the way, is the explanation for why this matter of secrecy comes up so often in the Gospels. The expectancy of of what people thought the Messiah would do would have implications for how freely Jesus would be allowed to continue to minister. I mean, his enemies were gaining momentum, and he knew they would, but, but Jesus was trying to delay the inevitable reaction to him as long as he could for the sake of his own ministry. And so if these men understood who he was, and if they had faith in him, then he also told them, well, they had to obey him. And what do they do? Well, they simply disobey. They have another agenda. They want to tell as many people as possible about what has happened to them and the conclusions they've come to. Only the long-expected Messiah can do this. But in so doing, they have absolutely no interest in Jesus' agenda. They ignore his instructions. And that's a lesson we must take from the miracles. See, there were people who, whatever faith they had, well, that was not the kind of faith that, that willingly submitted to Jesus' authority over their lives. I think there's a point of application for all of us to consider. How many of us cry to Jesus at the point of our crisis, but we are unresponsive to his call that we submit to his leadership in our lives? And we do find that Jesus, who surely knew these two men would react exactly as they did, still he heals them. Now, that's his compassion. That's his concern for the plight of the human race. But we aren't his followers if he heals us. We're his followers if we bend the knee and confess that he's Lord and that we are expected to submit and to yield to him. And that's always been a problem. It's easy to simply confess Jesus as Lord and God, trumpeting all the good things that he has done in our lives, and at the same time, we refuse his commands. Whether it's our sexual choices, or our our affections, or our approach to money, or a number of other things, many simply refuse him. As John said in John 2 verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And then John adds, for he himself knew what was in a man. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada, has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. Matthew wants to tell us one more miracle story, and as before, this one is also premised on human desperation. Look again at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. See, I've often wondered about all the accounts of demon possession at the time of Jesus. 
I assume that there were more cases than was normal because the demons knew that they were in for the warfare of the ages and they had come for a fight. But not all physical illness has the same source. A lot of people are sick and it has absolutely nothing to do with demon possession. But all demon possession has physical effects on the body. Ultimately, it destroys the body. In the meantime, madness and disease are the most common symptoms arising out of demon possession. But let's stop for a moment and consider this relationship of demon possession to illness. Now, I'm reading Mark 1, verse 32. There, Mark says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now, clearly, in this passage, Mark is making a distinction between illness and demon possession. And so we can very easily see that in the ancient Jewish times, the Jews did not think that all illness was a result of demon possession. And in the ministry of Jesus, most of the time when he heals the sick, he makes no mention of demons. So what exactly is demon possession? Now, there are those, and this argument has become very popular in our day, but they will argue that we should not be talking about demon possession. Rather, we should be talking about, they say, demonization. And so as this argument goes, demonization is not about a demon absolutely controlling the life of an individual, but a matter of varying degrees of demon involvement. You know, I recently heard one Bible teacher say, and I quote, all of those who we seek to bring to Christ are potentially to one degree or another demonized, most only mildly, he said, many severely so. Now, that's an astonishing statement. All of those we seek to bring to Christ are in some degree demonized? Wow. See, when we read through the Bible, we don't even get a hint of that. See, if this were the case, we must then suspect that demonization is indeed a very common phenomenon. You know, if that were true, we would expect all manner of lesser forms of demon possession that would be hard to notice outside of genuine spiritual discernment. Demonization would then be measured in degrees and not an indicator of a demon holding absolute control over an individual. And if that were so, we would expect demons of lust, of anger, of theft, of greed, demons of disrespect. I mean, on and on go the list. A whole host of forms of, of demonization living within people. Indeed, many people are saying just that. And so we have all sorts of ministries today in which there are constant deliverance from demons, which all sorts of people never knew they had. I mean, this kind of activity in some circles is, it's almost become a cottage industry. I mean, go see person so-and-so, and he's going to cast out the demon of anxiety from you. Now, I'm convinced that this way of thinking is really nonsense. See, I'm about to make a statement, and I want you to hear its importance. You ready? The vast majority of cases of demon possession found in the Bible are ones in which those people who witnessed it identified it easily. In other words, they didn't need anyone with a gift of discernment. What they saw was evident to everyone. So, for instance, the man with a legion of demons recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke wore no clothing, lived in tombs, and had superhuman strength whereby he could break chains made to hold prisoners. The boy with a demon in Matthew 17 had frequent seizures, suffered greatly, and people witnessed that in some fashion the demon threw him into water or fire. Dad knew immediately what he was looking at. 
The demon-possessed girl in Acts 16 was able to predict the future and was involved in fortune-telling, which was an occultic art. When she was delivered, she was unable to perform her occult arts again. There was a supernatural ability involved in her demon possession. Or think about the seven sons of Sceva who were easily overpowered and beaten by one demon-possessed man who is described in Acts 19. See, in each case, the situation is bizarre, it's easily observable, and would be identified as demon possession by the entire community. I mean, there's no such thing as secret demons that no one knew about. See, that kind of thing, I just don't think it's found in the Bible. But perhaps the most telling story is the one that's found in in Mark 7, it's 24 to 30. You know, in this story, a Greek woman begged Jesus to help her daughter as the daughter was demon possessed. And Jesus, after a period of time, told her to go home that the demon had left. And Mark records the following fascinating statement. He says, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. See, the story forces one to ask the most obvious question. I mean, how is it that the woman saw that the demon was gone? Apparently, the woman recognized the condition of deliverance immediately. See, that story forces us to conclude that the release of the demon was easy to recognize. Now, listen, this is very important. We have to conclude that it must be easy to identify demon possession by anyone, by anyone who has a worldview that allows them to understand what this thing is all about. And so, I don't agree with people who talk about demons of lust or demons of anger or of bitterness. I mean, the list goes on and on. Listen, you don't need a demon to lust. You can do that on your own very well. See, it's a matter of the flesh. If you want to put an end to lust, don't ask to be delivered from the spirit of lust. Do what the Bible tells you to do. Romans 8 verse 13, by the spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. Romans 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is, your mortal body, the flesh, which is subject to repeated habitual patterns that live in us. They must be wrestled into submission. But that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not about demons, folks. It's about the flesh. So what then is demon possession? Well, Hendrickson says, demon possession describes a condition in which a distinct and evil personality, foreign to the person possessed, has taken control of an individual. This evil personality or demon is able to speak through the mouth of the possessed individual. And I would add to that, this is not the same as mental illness. For demon possession, makes the individual profoundly evil and manifests itself in great wickedness. See, look, lots of mentally ill people are confused and even have terrifying visions, but that doesn't make them profoundly evil. Now, now given that reality, imagine the scene that's described in Matthew 9, 32 to 34. The friends of this man have watched in horror as their friend was taken over by evil spirits. How he got that way, we're not told, but but his sin was left unchecked, and soon he became a dwelling place for demons. See, in the beginning, he would have cursed God. He would have been sold into evil, an evil so profound that removed his human personality. In the end, he had lost his ability to speak. The Bible says he became mute. Now, if you love this man, I mean, what else could you do but go to Jesus? 
It's desperation that drove them there. And as Jesus drove out the demon, the man spoke, and immediately all that evil left him and he was healed. The response to this divides the community instantly. There are those who are filled with joy. I mean, nothing like that has ever happened. That's true. I mean, read your Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament does contain references to demons. And if you don't know, let me show you Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. And there it says, they sacrificed to demons that were not gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. See, the entire Old Testament history with idolatry is about demons finding their way into the worship of Israel. But no one drove them out, sent them running in terror. That is until Jesus showed up. Yeah, it's true. Nothing like that had ever happened in Israel before. But the Pharisees had an explanation that Jesus was doing profound miracles. Well, that was undeniable. But how one interprets that happens to depend on one's starting point. One might say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or one might say, well, all this is a satanic attempt to deceive us. And that's what Matthew wants us to see as he presents us with miracle story after miracle story. He wants us to see that the miracles do something. Miracles force us to either believe or to blaspheme Jesus. Jesus takes away from us all other choices. We will either bow to him and worship him, submit to him, or we will be overcome by hatred of him. His miracles forced us to take a position And indeed, he wants us to do that. He wants us to be either for him or to be against him. His miracles demand that we make the choice. John, thanks for your message today. I was thinking, you know, yesterday we talked more about the miracles of healing. And, uh, and we rejoice over those. These miracles were, we're talking about uh, casting out of demons. They cause some dissension in the ranks, some, some opposition. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there is what I like to call spiritual McCarthyism. And if you don't know it, McCarthy was a senator in the United States in the 1950s. And it was a time of the anti-communist fervor. So McCarthy was leading this charge of finding uh, communists under every rock and crevice. I mean, everywhere we looked, there were more communists. And sometimes I think we do that with demons. I think we do that because we're trying to prove that actually we really believe there are such a thing as demons. So I think we should be able to say, yes, Satan exists. Yes, demon possession exists. But let's not do what the Bible doesn't do. Let's not imagine suddenly that demons are lurking under every bush where we look. Let's rather say that this is my father's world and let's content ourselves in that. Well, thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day and every time I see it through different eyes. 
What a great way to use the time we've been given. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.